Well, hello everyone and welcome to Ridge Church Online. I'm Dan, I'm a pastor of youth and young adults here at Ridge Church and it is great to be with you this morning. I'm glad you've joined us from wherever you are and in light of all the shifts and changes that are happening with COVID-19 pandemic and all that's going on in our province. There's lots that's stressful and there's lots that's overwhelming. And so I'm glad that wherever you are at today that you've been able to find uh, this, where we get to reflect on who Jesus is, reflect on that, what that means. And for one last week, as we've been going through this series, we get to reflect on what that means for our work. And work is something that, as we've talked about it, we've seen it through the lens of how God is a creative who has created us to create. We've seen how work has been cursed because of sin and it's got brokenness and heartbreak and longing and pain that's included in it. But how Jesus and what Jesus has done on our behalf on the cross and in the resurrection, but also in his example, shows us what it looks like to redeem our work. But what about in the long run? What about in eternity? I, I remember when I was young, 17 or 18, and I was working at a Bible camp, one of the things we did all spring was get the camp ready for campers to come, right? And so before you get to do the fun part of camp ministry, you get to do the not so fun part of camp ministry, which at the camp I worked at, which was 70 acres, which got kind of beaded and battered by the wind and the storms and all those kind of things through the winter, was cleaning up all this stuff. And I remember one day uh, in kind of a four-hour work session, my friend Justin and I, we were uh, cleaning up sticks and brush and basically just cleaning up the forest floor, which is not a very fun job. You're tired, you're exhausted, you got up and started at 6.30 a.m. And, and it was just not the fun part of work. And we were chatting about work. We were chatting about the parts of work that were amazing and the parts of work that weren't so amazing. And, and my friend asked me this really interesting question. He said, Dan, do you think we'll work in heaven? Like down the road when we die and, and become resurrected and into eternity, if we believe we have eternity that's going to be spent with Jesus because of Jesus' work on the cross for us, will we work there? Like will we pick up sticks like this or, or will we not have to? Will it just be rest? And I remember kind of being struck by the question and thinking about it for a second. And, and in that moment, covered in sweat, trying to clean up a forest floor that the next day could be just as dirty as it was before because, well, it's a forest. I remember thinking, no, no, we won't have to work in heaven because this sucks. This isn't fun. This isn't good. I mean, sure, it needs to be done and I'm willing to do it. And later on, I'll get to do some fun work. But Right, this right here, no way. There's no way that, that work would carry on into heaven. Heaven is about relaxing and chilling out and doing whatever I want as long as it's not sinful and, and all those kind of things. I had a pretty low view of what eternity would be like. Heaven was just going to be about rest. It was just going to be about chilling out and getting what I wanted. And if I'm honest, a lot of the time when work gets hard, it's easy to start to think that way, isn't it? When I feel like the toil and sweat and pain of the curse, I, at least, slip into this idea that I'd like eternity to not really include work. That one day when I die and get resurrected or when Jesus comes back and we enter into eternity, when sin is banished and we enter into eternity with God, I don't really want to work. I want to chill. I want to be okay. I want to just kick back and relax and watch the Canucks win every game because that's what I think it will be like in heaven. That's what I'd like to be. But in the meantime, 
I'm okay to work. I'm okay to do hard things. I, I can see, you know, what Jonathan talked about last week and how Jesus in a biblical worldview changes the way that we work and even the worst parts of our work that are hard and challenging and, and maybe not so fun at all can be redeemed. I can, I can take those things and and I look at these verses in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay, I, I can do that. I can work for the glory of God. Or 1 Corinthians 15, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the labor for the Lord is not in vain. Okay, my work is not in vain. There's, there's a reason behind it. There's a purpose behind it. And then Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working for the Lord, not for human masters. See, there's these verses in the New Testament that we look at and we cling to the gift and the power and the purpose of our work, right? We can look at work and say, okay, there's a reason for it. But if I'm not careful, I slip into this idea, whether spoken or not, that someday, whether by death or Christ's return, I will step into an eternity spent in the presence of God. But in the chapters of Revelation, we see that this presence that will be spent with Jesus is not without work. It's not just about kicking back on the couch for the rest of eternity. It's not just an eternal church service. It's not just sitting around on a cloud with little wings. Revelation, if you're unfamiliar or, or haven't really spent any time in the book of Revelation, is the final book of the Bible. It's the vision of Jesus' disciple John while he's been exiled on the island of Patmos. It is filled with vivid and intense imagery that theologians and scholars for years and years have kind of debated over and tried to figure out what does this mean and why does this matter and is this literal or is this symbolic? There's all this stuff with uh, the book of Revelation that confuses us. But really what it's about is, is the entering into Jesus uh, into history. It's the story of Jesus coming back post-death and resurrection after he ascended to heaven. It's the story of him returning. And it's the story of what happens and why that matters. It's the story of what the Bible calls the age to come. It's the story of eternity. And it's an important book of the Bible, not just because it's the last one, but because it shows us something. And, and most of us, I think, if we're honest, avoid the book of Revelation. Um, for, for many of us, we either get caught up in it and debates, and this means this, and this is what this is about, or we just go, okay, it's too confusing. Like, that's just weird. I don't get it. There's dragons, there's mothers, there's bulls. and I don't, I don't get any of that stuff. And everybody's just arguing about what it means. So I'm just going to avoid it altogether. But there are some really excellent commentaries to help you read the book of Revelation because there's so much beautiful gospel wisdom and knowledge in there to be had. And so we recommend a book by Daryl Johnson, who's a commentator. He actually lives here in British Columbia. He's connected to a church in Vancouver. And he has a commentary called Disciple on the Edge, which walks through the book of Revelation, and it's informed a lot of what you're going to hear in this message today. And so if you want to look at the book of Revelation, we highly recommend using that as a resource. You're welcome to borrow my copy, or you can find it on Amazon or wherever. But it's worth spending time in the book of Revelation. As Daryl Johnson puts it in his commentary, it shows us that things are not as they seem. That's what the book of Revelation is about. And in its closing chapters, in the final words, paragraphs, and sentences of the scriptures, we see a picture. We see a picture not of the end, but of a new beginning that rings out into eternity. And here's what it says in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city 
new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. And most of us love the, this picture, this idea, right? We, we hear a verse like that and our heart just kind of leaps and longs for it. Oh, man. For God to make all things new in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of all the hurt and struggle, not just with COVID, but with what, what's happening in the world in places like Afghanistan and Haiti and other places, we see all the brokenness and we long for God to make things new. And we see this picture. How could we not love it? It's a new city. It's described with the beauty of a bride. You've been to a wedding. You know what that looks like when the bride comes out. And it doesn't matter who you are. It's the most beautiful moment. It's God dwelling with the people that he's created. There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more shame. There's no more mourning. It's a beautiful place where all things have been made new. And that's what we want, especially in a world that we live in, right? Especially in this time, in this place where everything can feel so broken, especially in our work, especially when what we're craving at our core is a deep, sense of rest. Our work, whatever that work might be, can exhaust us. And even if we see purpose in it, even if we have a good biblical theology of what work is, it makes us tired. It makes us feel overwhelmed. It makes us feel downtrodden. We have today unfettered access to our work that makes us exhausted and burnt out. COVID's just made it worse. Many of us who shifted to working at home realized that a phone in my hand or a laptop on my kitchen table or in my bedroom means I have unlimited access to work, which is super convenient. The only problem, the other side of that coin means work has unlimited access to us. We don't know how to stop. We don't know how to slow down. And so we just keep pushing. I can send one more email while I'm in bed. I can check what that call was while I'm at the dinner table with my wife. I can just do one more thing while I'm on the drive. I can even send a text at a stoplight. I can get a little bit more done and I can write an email or finish that report on the couch. I can watch Netflix and relax, but I can, I can get some work done while I do that. And, and we just keep on pushing and eventually we're worn out. You know, I think about the last two years. I love my job in a way that I don't know that many people get to. There's not a job in the world that I would rather do than this one right here to love and serve you as a church, but particularly to love and serve the next generation in our church. Students from grade six all the way up to their mid to late 20s. That's the people I get to spend my time loving, praying for, and caring about. I, I think for me, I have the best job in the entire world. But over the last two years, there's been moments where I go, maybe this is just too hard. <sighs> There's too many changes. The government, every week I'm going to take a holiday. Some other big thing with COVID comes and I just have more work to do and more meetings to have and more things to catch up on and 
harder conversations and what do I do with this? There, there hasn't been any time in my life than in the last two years where I've gone, man, I don't know if I can keep this up forever. See, the problem is I'm so addicted to work, like many of us are, and, and we just keep going. And in that pain, in that exhaustion, we long for heaven, which is not a bad thing. We long for heaven. We long for eternity spent with Jesus. And we see verses in the Bible and we go, well, I want all the work to go away. Even if I like my job, I just want it to be done. I want to be finished. I want to be able to sit back and relax and not be responsible to anyone for anything. I just want what's comfortable for me. And there's a part of that that's actually really beautiful and it's what we're made for. We're not just made for work. We're also made for rest. But we get into this mindset where we say, well, this is just life. I'm I'm living for eternity. I'm living for the next life. So who really cares? Because it's all going to burn anyway, right? Everything here doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, earth is going to get wiped out and God's going to come back. And who cares about what I do here? Discipleship becomes, in the words of one pastor I know, is get saved, stop sinning, and hold on. Just try to hold on and make it because when God comes back, then everything will be okay and we don't have to worry about anything else. This comes sometimes from this verse, 1 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, we read a verse like that, which is in the Bible. It's in the scriptures. And so it's true. It's, it, it's what God says. And we go, okay, so it doesn't matter. Who cares about my work for the rest of it? Because if my life is this and eternity is this, who cares about this? I just want to hold on to make sure I get to go to heaven when I die. But here's the problem with that. Even if we wouldn't vocalize it, it means we've internalized the theology that says it's all going to burn, so who cares what happens other than that I make it into heaven? Who cares what happens? I think Tim Mackey, who's a pastor and author, leads a ministry called The Bible Project that you can find on YouTube that I think is really helpful. Um, I'm actually going to steal a couple of his diagrams on this concept that I found really, really helpful, and hopefully you will too. We've internalized a theology that looks like this. We live on earth. That's where we're born. And the story is about me. And we go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And one day at the end of all time, God will, based on which side of that line we are on, are we good enough? Have we done enough? Did we work hard enough? Did we love people well enough? Did we have the right ideas about who Jesus is? Because if we do, then we get to go to heaven. But if we didn't, then we go to hell. The end of creation is just separating people out. That's all it really is. And so we spend our lives wondering, which side of the line am I on? All that really matters is getting to the end on the right side of the line. But the biblical theology of what heaven and earth is like, you'll see that phrase in the Bible again and again, if you just read it at face value all the time, Yahweh, God, talks about the heavens and the earth. They're colliding, they're connected. And so in this next diagram, you can see that actually a more accurate picture of how the Bible shows us heaven and earth is there are two intermingling spaces. And in that middle space, that's where the presence of God is. It's in that middle space. And because God is holy and in heaven, he can't inhabit earth. And so there has to be this middle space, this middle ground, this mediator, if you will, wherein God's presence can be near us. Two circles which run over the course of the narrative. 
Two spaces which run all the way through the narrative of Scripture that moves closer and closer together. The story of the Bible is God's presence stepping into earth. And what I would say is that the story of Scripture is not a story about whether or not you will make it to heaven. The the unfortunate news for some of us is that the Bible is not about us. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is about God. And what God is doing, and that impacts you and me in a profound, important way. The story of Scripture is not a story about whether or not you will make it to heaven. It is a story about how, through Jesus, heaven is making its way into earth. See, that's the difference we need to understand. As one author puts it, our eschatology or our view of the eternity, our view of the end times, will shape our ethics. Or more specifically, how we view what happens and rings out into eternity will impact how we live and work and show up in our lives today. That's true of our work in a more profound way than most of us realize, and it's been that way since the Old Testament. Consider how the prophet Isaiah, hundreds and hundreds of years before John had this vision that we just read in Revelation 21, hundreds of years, here's how Isaiah describes what the coming age will look like. From Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. See, that's God again, the creator, working, creating, making something beautiful. I create Jerusalem for the city of God to be a joy and her people to be glad. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. It's a very similar language to Revelation 21, but skipping down a bit, here's what it says, carrying on in verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and gardens and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, for they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Do you catch that? Do you catch the language? Because it's easy to skim over in this. It's easy, like me, cleaning up a forest floor to miss the beautiful truth of what our eternity with God will look like. What does it say? It says that God's people will build. It says that God's people will plant and harvest. It says that they will enjoy their work. Now, I know that might be hard to imagine for some of us who are tired and exhausted after the last year, but it's what the Bible tells us we're in for if we follow Jesus. It's what eternity will be like in God's eternity when heaven breaks into earth and the presence of God moves into everything. You and I will still work. But the beauty of work remains while the curse of work is cast out forever. It doesn't belong in God's eternity. It doesn't belong in God's presence. The curse cannot remain like that famous Christmas song. As far as the curse is found, that's where God brings his joy. See, the message you need to know today is that the story of redemption in Jesus, the story of redemption in Jesus, ends with restoration, not retreat. True redemption ends with restoration, not escape. 
or retreat. See, Jesus in his life, if you've read the gospel narratives, Jesus brings the kingdom of God to messy places. When Jesus shows up on the scene, or as John describes it, when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, when God puts on flesh and steps into human history, he doesn't set up a commune out in the desert and say, if you want to be a part of it, come join. Run away from everything. Run away from the city. Run away from your families. Run away from your responsibilities. Run away from your work. No, he steps into the messy places where there's sin and brokenness and hurt. And that's where he brings the kingdom. Jesus is not afraid of reality because he knows that just like the book of Revelation shows us, things are not as they seem. There's more to it than that. And how exactly are things not as they seem? Well, I I think it's really important to understand what is Jesus's opening statement in ministry that seems to make it pretty clear. In Mark chapter one, kind of the first image, first picture we get of Jesus and what he's about. We talk all the time about the gospel, which means good news. What is the good news that Jesus came to say? Here's what it says in Mark chapter one. This is the very first ministry that we see of Jesus, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. This carpenter shows up on the scene after being baptized. And this incredible moment where the heavens open up and the spirit shows up and the father speaks and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased and commissions him to do the work that he's called Jesus to do. What does Jesus say? He came to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God and said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. So repent and believe the gospel. In Jesus, we see that the proclamation of the kingdom of God has broken into places where it would seem impossible. That that image we showed you a little bit ago of the two circles where there's this little place in the middle, that's the only place God's presence can be. That the kingdom of God is breaking into earth. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into earth in ways that we don't really have concept for. See, we saw that little section in the middle of that Venn diagram in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle. And in a few months, we're hopping into a new series and we're going to look at the book of Exodus and how God works and wills through the life of Moses and through the Israelite people. The tabernacle was this place and it was only in that place that God's presence could be. Because God was holy and the world was not. And so it was only there. Later on, it became Solomon's temple. And it was big and it was beautiful and it was amazing. But you still had to sacrifice an animal to take on that sin. You had to do, there had to be a sacrifice in order for people to connect with God. It was only there in the holiest of holies that people could truly see and experience the presence of God where they may be struck dead. But in Jesus In Jesus, which the the gospel of John tells us, is the word become flesh. We see a breaking in of the kingdom of God to all spaces on earth. That verse in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is actually very similar to the old Hebrew word for tabernacle. The man Jesus became a tabernacle, a walking, talking presence of God that did not wait somewhere and tell people to come to him, but went to where the brokenness was. That is who Jesus was. Jesus didn't just tell people that the kingdom of God existed. He didn't just tell them that heaven was an option that they might be able to get a ticket to them to. He told them that its time had come. The Greek word there is kairos. 
there's two Greek words for time. One is chronos. That describes the clock. Okay, what is the chronos, right? What time is it today? But a kairos moment is this moment wherein something amazing and beautiful can happen. It's a moment of major decision. It's a moment where something powerful can happen. It's a moment for decision. It's a moment for movement. And Jesus shows up on the scene saying, this is a kairos moment. The kingdom of God is breaking in to human history no longer, as he says to the woman at the well, will worship only be done in a certain place at a certain time, but the kingdom of God is breaking in. Thomas Hardy, an author, puts it this way, the main object of religion is not to get a man into heaven. It is, get, it is to get heaven into the man. And that is what Jesus does. He births through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit a new life in us. What we believe as Christians is that what Jesus did in the cross and in the resurrection made a way for us to be reborn into God's family as God's adopted children. Second Corinthians tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God in Revelation 21 tells us that he is making all things new. And where does Jesus start with you and with me? You, if you are in Christ, are a new creation. My friends, the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. It's not. The story of scripture, the story of God is not the story of me and whether or not I make it. It is the story of the kingdom of heaven breaking in and changing everything. It is a complete reformation of our whole selves. And do you know what that means for us? For you and me, if you've received the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done in your life, it means that in your work, you are invited to imitate Jesus. You are invited to imitate Jesus in what he did, in making pockets of the kingdom of God wherever you go. And the work you do can have that impact. You can create a pocket of the kingdom of God if you have the Holy Spirit living within you at your office. In the way that you interact, in the way that you speak, I loved hearing Gary George's story the other week talking about how it's really simple things. It's just living out my faith in the day-to-day, -day, how I speak, how I interact, how I live out the fruit of the Spirit. It's not complicated, but it brings about the kingdom of God in those places. You could create a company that reflects the kingdom of God. If you're a boss, you could do that in how you care for your employees, as Jonathan talked about last week. If you're just on the team, you can help create a culture that is beautiful and amazing and shows people grace and kindness. You can serve coffee in a way that looks like the wedding feast of the Lamb. You can serve food. You can work in a restaurant and make experiences for people that reflect the beauty and joy and celebration that heaven will be. You can build things that show the beauty of the kingdom of God. One of the things I'm excited about in the book of Exodus is we look and all these people, and sure, Moses was the leader, and Aaron did some speaking and all those kind of things, but we get to hear the stories of people who built the tabernacle, people who led and, and did different things that, that all work in some way, shape, or form can reflect and create the beauty of God, allowing the kingdom of God to break in. And as we've said all the way through this series, this is God's plan. This is God's intention for work. It's not a curse. It's a calling. And it's not just God's plan until he comes back. It's not just God's plan until he cancels everything and restarts the world. No, he is preparing you for eternity in the presence of God. Dallas Willard has this phrase that's a little cheesy, but he calls it training for reigning. 
What you do now for work is actually preparing you for what God wants you to be. What Dallas Willard says in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he says, through what you are doing right now, we are becoming who we will be forever. That is who we are becoming, and that lasts on forever. Remember that line from the Lord's Prayer that so many of us have memorized but never really think about? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What if that's not just something we're kicking back on God and saying, yeah, 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 if you want your kingdom to come, God, go for it. What if it's actually reorienting our hearts to be a part of that mission, to be a part of that work, to be a part of, like our big brother in the faith, Jesus, bringing pockets of the kingdom of God wherever we might go. Your kingdom come, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. And what if we participated in that? What if prayer isn't just throwing it back on God, but what if we are to become emissaries for the kingdom that will rule and reign forever? The time has come. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has died and risen. And that changes everything, not just today, but forever. The gospel message of Jesus changes everything, not just today, but forever. That's the promise. Carrying on from the passage we read earlier, here's how the final chapter of the Bible tells us what the forever piece of that will look like. Revelation 22, final chapter of the Bible, final pages of the Bible, what will it look like? Then the angel showed me a river, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Isn't that beautiful? Do we need healing of nations right now? Verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Genesis 3 has been made right. But the throne of God, it says, and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. My friends, that is our destiny. That is what we are called to. Not to just try and make it into heaven and then kick back. I love how Daryl Johnson describes this passage. He says, the biblical vision for the future is not a wish dream. It's not a wish dream. It's not some fantasy of our comfort and pleasure that we just get to live out forever. It is not an escape from reality as we know it. Rather, it is a remaking of reality as we know it. It is a redeeming, a making whole of reality as we know it. Look, says the one who sits on the throne, I am making all things new. We don't have to escape earth. That's not what eternity with Jesus is about. The resurrection of the saints is about us entering into a forever rhythm of work and rest as God intended it, removing the brokenness of the curse, and inviting us into building what God has always intended for all of human history. This is our future. This is what we are in for, a remaking of all things where we as the servants of the King will worship forever and will reign with him forever. That is what we are invited into as image bearers of God who are followers of Jesus. God is making all things new. 
And that gives us hope. That gives us joy. And we're going to celebrate communion today. And as we celebrate it, we consider that the first thing that God chooses to make new is us. That through what Jesus has done in the cross and in the resurrection, we see a picture that we are invited to step into of laying down our lives and being reborn into the image of God and how he created us to be. That we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that his broken body changes everything for us, not just today, but forever. And so we're going to participate in communion together, remembering that God is making all things new. That this, what we celebrate, the broken body, the shed blood, is not just a ticket to heaven. It is what changes everything. And we remember that today. So if you've got your elements, you can grab them, whatever that looks like for you at home today. But first, we're going to take the bread. It says in the scriptures, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat for this is my body. So let's remember the broken body of Jesus together. Afterwards, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. And as we take now the cup, we remember that it's by Jesus' blood shed on our behalf that we have been made new forever. Let's remember that together. Lord Jesus, you are the king who is making all things new. You are our Lord who has invited us into eternity, serving and working and participating without the curse, without the pain, without the exhaustion, without the workaholism, but into a beautiful rhythm of what Eden was always meant to be. That's what we have been invited into. And so, Lord, I ask today, that you would instill in our hearts an understanding, God, that we have been created not just to try and hang on until we can get to heaven and avoid hell, but rather that you've invited us into something so much more beautiful, that the kingdom of heaven has come, that in this Kairos moment you have broken in, Lord Jesus. Let us not miss that. Let us not trade in the gospel of the kingdom of God for a story about myself. God, may our work forever flow from a place of what you've placed in us. May our work flow from what you've done for us on the cross. May our work flow from the beautiful reality that we have been made new, that we might be emissaries of your kingdom to the world we live in not just today, but forever. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the beautiful mystery of the gospel that we reflected upon today in communion. We pray all these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.